Welcome to AUKUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. We're advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, and research. Welcome to the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons Young Arthroplasty Group podcast. I'm Anna Cohen Rosenblum, an academic orthopedic surgeon at Louisiana State University, where our mascot is an alligator doing a femoral nail. I have no conflicts of interest with any of the authors of these studies or the devices discussed. And I'm Lenny Buller. I work at Indiana University, where I recently achieved the status of periprosthetic super spreader. I have no conflicts of interest with the authors of these studies or the devices discussed. I'm Mark Mildred. I'm in private practice in Eugene, Oregon. I specialize in iatrogenic unilateral limb lengthening procedures of the hip. I also have no conflicts of interest with the authors of these studies or devices discussed. Now we're going to move on and introduce our guest, Dr. Antonia Chen, and discuss some recent arthroplasty articles with her. Dr. Chen is an associate professor at Harvard Medical School and the director of arthroplasty research at Brigham and Women's Hospital. She's on the editorial board of eight journals and was the president of the Musculoskeletal Infection Society. She has authored over 200 publications, 40 book chapters, and two books, won multiple research awards, presented all over the world, and we are so lucky to have her joining us today. Thanks for having me here. I appreciate it. I have no conflicts of interest for the papers, although I wish I did have conflicts of interest with all of them. <laughs> so now we're going to talk about Dr. Chen's recent article that was published in the Journal of Arthroplasty involving MRSA decolonization. The article is called, Is Preoperative Staph Aureus Screening and Decolonization Effective at Reducing Surgical Site Infection in Patients Undergoing Orthopedic Surgery? A systematic review and meta-analysis with a special focus on elective total joint arthroplasty. The goals of the study were to determine if staph aureus screening and decolonization was effective at reducing surgical site infection in orthopedic surgery in general and total joint arthroplasty in particular. They also were investigating which preoperative staph aureus screening or treatment strategy was the most cost-effective. So they performed a meta-analysis to look at data comparing surgical site infection and PGI both before and after staph aureus screening and or nasal and full body decolonization, as well as a systematic review for cost effectiveness of treatments. They found that not decolonizing preoperatively, both with nasal mupirosin and chlorhexidine full body wash was associated with an increased risk of postoperative infection after orthopedic surgery in general and after total joint arthroplasty in particular. And that all the treatment strategies seemed cost effective, but universal decolonization rather than screening followed by treatment seemed to be the most effective at preventing PGI and the most cost-effective approach. So moving on to some questions for Dr. Chen. I want to understand a little bit more about the timing of these infection events. If the effect size of preoperative decolonization is so large, and my assumption is that these PGIRs are occurring postoperatively, wouldn't it make sense to continue to decolonize after surgery into the postoperative period? if that's when they're occurring. And I guess along those lines, if we're saying it's an intraoperative or perioperative event, are you decolonizing as a surgeon? Should our surgical staff be decolonizing? What's the exact mechanism that you think is going on? How does this work? Super deep thoughts, great points. And really what it comes down to is people say, when you have the MRSA and MSSA, and the nose is actually the most sensitive, which is interesting. They've checked nares, they've checked axilla, they've checked the gluteal cleft, which is also known as the butt crack. They've looked at all the <laughs> groin area. They looked everywhere. 
And I found that the nares is actually the most sensitive because it sheds the most. For whatever reason, MRSA and MSSA also shed from the nares. So the idea of treating patients perioperatively or in the preoperative phase is that when your wound is open, in theory, you can actually shed it from your nose down to the wound itself. And that's why other products like Podone Iodine, people are sticking up the nose to coat the nares, get rid of the colonization at that time frame and you will probably likely repopulate. You're exactly right, that does happen. So the key factor is to have it treated before surgery as opposed to postoperatively, because in theory, your wound is closed at that point in time and there's a dressing over it. And that's the beauty of these, you know, seven day dressings that stay on for a period of time, because as you're shedding it and other people shed too, it doesn't cover on the wound because the wound is actually closed. It's the actual incision itself when the wound is open that you actually wanna keep that shedding from happening. In Germany, they actually test the OR staff and they test surgeons. And if you are MRSA positive or MSSA positive, you can't operate. You have to be treated like you do for the patients and then you can come back in, which is an interesting concept because we don't do that. We don't check. I think it would actually be really good to check in all honesty. Now to be fair, if we use hoods, we actually bring in air and we just keep it in our side ourselves as opposed to spreading it to the patient in theory. So, but those are all important things. I think that's why as long as you do something in the preoperative period to try to clean up the nose beforehand, that's what's really beneficial. So if I understand what you're saying, the thought is that when these people that are MRSA positive, actually during surgery and the wound is open, they are shedding from their nares and it is getting into the incision. I mean, it would seem from just a practical standpoint, like there are a bunch of different potential sources of MRSA that are much closer to the incision. When I was a resident, I was like, well, of course, whatever's closer to the wound is going to be more problematic. So we looked at spine patients and we tested it for lumbar spine and we compared it with the axilla and we compared it with the nares. And really, I would thought the gluteal cleft was going to be by far the dirtiest. And it was actually the nares who had the highest percentage. So even though that's closer to the wound, it actually does have caused more problems from the nares. They've actually typed the type of MRSA or MSSA from the nares, and they've actually found it in a PJI inside the joint itself. Yeah, that would be interesting to see. Yeah. yeah. So what are you telling your patients in the office to convince them to actually be compliant with shoving this stuff up their nose? There's two things to look at here. One, compliance may not be high, but I do tell them that it's going to decrease the risk of infection. The second part when it comes to compliance and doing it is getting it in time. And that's one of the biggest things is, especially with COVID right now, we're going everything remote, right? So our preoperative clearance is going remote. They don't go in to actually get their swabs like they normally would in the past. So sometimes they're getting it two days before at the same time they're getting their COVID swab. Then you don't have enough time to treat it for the five days that you normally treat it for. But they're normally pretty good about it because compared to now with COVID swabs that go into your brain, these don't. And so when you just have to clean the front of your nose, patients are okay with it. So practically speaking, how are you dealing with patients? How do they go about the decolonization procedure in your practice? So I'm going to look at this pre-COVID, but they used to come in for their preoperative testing between zero to 30 days beforehand, right. ideally approximately two weeks beforehand. At that point in time, they would get tested and everyone does HIPAA beforehand. So they do HIPAA for two or three days prior to surgery. And they would do that, you know, once a day. And then on the morning of surgery, we'd actually wipe them down with the HIPAA cloth, just as the last kind of final compliance measure. When they got the test, they would find out at least in a few days afterwards, and once they were positive, someone from the preoperative testing would actually call them and would call them and say, you're positive. We're going to put in a script for Bacterban. You'll take that twice a day for the five days prior to surgery. You already have the wash cloths. Go ahead and use that and then show up for surgery. Based on the results of this study, are you going to change anything about your practice as regards staph aureus screening and decolonization? 
personally, I'm probably going to keep it because what's nice is we do have the infrastructure for it. Our entire group does it together. So once the whole group does it, it's easy just to keep it going. The only thing that we might change is if we're having problems with COVID and we can't screen patients, we might go to a universal protocol. So that's the only thing. We used to give vancomycin and ANCEF to every single patient preoperatively. And the reason we did that was because we had a spike in MRSA. So we had a rule that came from all of ortho, actually. Anytime you put an implant in, you would get vanco and ANCEF. We realize it's overkill now. Our MRSA rates have come down significantly. And so now we screen for the MRSA and we just give vanco for those MRSA patients. Mark had the same spike every place he's gone, residency. It's <laughs> 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 just bottom around the country. This, this is coming from the super spreader himself. <laughs> we actually swab patients preoperatively and we swabbed them again on the day of surgery. And some patients who were negative became positive. Oh, some people who were positive remain positive, and most of the patients who were positive became negative after treatment. So it can Perfect. still happen that you were negative beforehand, you become positive. So there is something to be said about treating everyone across the board, but that's where I like the povidone iodine approach, because if you do bacterbend on everyone, you do have the resistance, you do have problems about using more antibiotics. So at least for now, actually, we've actually switched to put in povidone iodine in everyone's nose. You know what I love about this paper, though? It's so actionable. I'm actually being able to share the responsibility with my patients now in infection management. Where All right. So the next article we're going to discuss is formal physical therapy following total hip and knee arthroplasty incurs additional cost without improving outcomes. This one was published in the October issue of Journal of Arthroplasty by Michael Yayek and the group at the Rothman Institute. So this was a retrospective analysis, and the authors evaluated all primary total hip and knee arthroplasties performed between 2015 and 17 and stratified them into one of four groups, either self-directed home exercises, formal home physical therapy, formal outpatient PT, or combined home and outpatient PT. And they had over 4,000 patients included with 45% of them in the no physical therapy group and 44% in the outpatient PT only group. So those were the two majority groups. The authors showed that formal physical therapy was more likely to be had in knees and also in female patients, and that it accounted for up to 8% of the 90-day episode of care costs. While all the groups achieved the minimal clinically important difference in their respective outcome, in spite of the increased cost associated with physical therapy, there was no added patient-reported outcome benefit to therapy in the HIP group. And interestingly, the no physical therapy group achieved a significantly greater improvement in Coos Jr. scores at two years postoperatively. I found it to be a pretty compelling analysis of a large cohort of patients demonstrating decreased costs and no significant change in functional outcomes when using home exercise programs. I just don't know how generalizable this approach would be to arthroplasty practices around the country. And maybe for some folks, if they actually have some ownership in physical therapy things, how interested they'd be in doing that. I do think a big limitation of the study though is the potential for selection bias and intersurgeon variability with regards to who receives physical therapy. These surgeons who are allowed to pick the patients that are getting the physical therapy probably identified high-risk patients for complications. And even with the additional help of physical therapy, those patients still had complications. So I guess the big question is, are therapist friends going to be scared? Is this going to put them out of business? What do you guys think? I think my patients are different than Rothman patients. I'd like to see kind of a social analysis of like what the patients were like. And so I'm not sure I would generalize this to my practice. Now, there are more studies coming out showing that this is an actual thing and maybe we don't need to do 
physical therapy on everyone. But yeah, it's hard when that's been dogma. And then if a patient has a bad outcome, they're like, well, why didn't I do physical therapy? Like my friends did physical therapy. They told me I need to do physical therapy. You hit the nail on the head, Mark. I've got the best of both worlds. I did a physical therapy study at Rothman and then came up here to Boston. And it was really interesting. So it was only on knee patients. And when we offered home physical therapy, paper physical therapy, and then outpatient physical therapy, most patients did not want to participate in the study because they did not want to do outpatient physical therapy and they want to do therapy on their own. And then I get to Boston and if I don't get physical therapy, I'm the devil. So there is a lot to be said, I agree, from the social perspective, patient expectation, but sometimes how we lay things out to patients as well, too. So you're right. The hard part is, is this generalizable or not? You know, at Rothman, they have a great patient population and patient base. They do get a mix of individuals. There's no doubt about it. But from a prospective randomized control study perspective, or just from a patient selection perspective, they're more likely to go without therapy than potentially in other places. Another question I had about the study is they don't really define what self-directed home-based exercise program. That could be like an iPad with some videos, right? I mean, that could be, or a piece of paper. So it's hard to know like what kind of resources exactly these patients are, are getting. And my fear would be that with my patient population, without some formal guidance that potentially they could fall through the cracks and not make as much progress as I would hope that they could make. The therapists are helpful to give you a warning when there's a problem too. Like if you don't see your patients back that often, which I see them at two weeks and six weeks, when do you see your patients back, Dr. Chen? I'm a two-weeker and six-weeker as well. At two weeks, I look for the incision and for six weeks, I'm looking for strength and range of motion. The one thing I will say that physical therapy does well, massage seems to be something that the patients here in Boston love. So that's the only reason they'll go to their physical therapist, right? Because most of the stuff physical therapy are trying to do virtually now, which basically means they don't need to see the physical therapist. I have a significant portion of my patients who are older and are weaker and deconditioned. So in those patients for hips, I think it's actually really good for them to go to formal physical therapy for just gait training and balance. So no, I have a lot of people coming in in wheelchairs or stretchers and a lot of my revisions too. And, and that's common. But I think in those people that are particularly fragile, those are the ones that well, they've let their arthritis get so bad or their disease get so bad that they're not speaking up. And so a, a, an un- really therapists can really push them too far, I think, because they're not going to say no. And then a complication happens and nobody's going to say anything. That's a good point. It's a balance. Or the next article that we're going to discuss, of course, when I get my journal of arthroplasty in the mail, I sit down and I read it cover to cover, like every, all of us do. I open up and it's got the beginning articles. And one of the beginning articles is this editorial. Well, this study is really interesting but maybe don't do this. And so, you know, immediately, like, you know, your ears pop up and you're like, what did they do? It's from the August edition of JOA. The title is a secondary surgical debridement for acute PGI should not be discarded. It's out of the Netherlands. And so even the abstract, it says in 2018, ICJR, they recommended not doing a second dare if the first one has failed. We did a bunch and this is how they did. This was a retrospective study out of the Netherlands involving two hospitals. Uh, they looked at patients undergoing a second DAIR between the years of 2006, 2016. So they only included acute PJI, uh, and they defined that as three weeks of symptoms or less. Arthroscopic debridements, patients with uh, less than a year follow-up were excluded. And they specifically say during their methods that only initial debridement, during the initial debridement, they did a synovectomy if indicated. I wasn't sure what that meant. Modular components were optionally exchanged. And then their post-op protocol was two weeks of IV antibiotics. And then they switched to an oral regimen at that point in time. 
Now, Vander went a second dare, which was their hospital's protocol. If there was persistent wound drainage, redness of wound, persistent elevated and inflammatory markers. And they defined failure of the secondary dare as a need for additional surgical interventions, such as an explant, a persistent need for suppressive antibiotics due to a persistent infection or a PJI related death. So they had 455 patients that underwent a first dare, primary dare. Of those, 32% underwent a double dare, mostly in acute early PJIs. In 58% of cases, this was performed within 14 days of the primary one. And of these 144 failures, only 25% of these failed and went on to need an implant removal, chronic suppression, what they defined as failure of the second dare. Of the people that failed this, 50% of these went on to undergo a third dare, or we're going to call it a triple dare. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of against what the modern dogma is, factors associated with the failure of the secondary dare, BMI under 30. So people with a higher BMI actually were more likely to succeed after a a double dare. And then other stuff that you would kind of think is chronic renal insufficiency. Yeah, that makes sense. And then a positive culture at the secondary dare led to a failure of the secondary dare. All right. So questions. Guys, what do we do with this? Like, are you guys going to start washing out people multiple times? Or, you know, someone comes in with a PGI, you wash them out, and they've still got a draining wound. Are you going to go in again? Or at that point in time, are you removing implants? The hard part, it's incredibly attractive, right? Because a dare is in comparison to a one stage or a two stage. And it's so hard because do you take the old literature and believe it? Do you take new literature and believe it? So this flies in the face of what the, what the Carolina guys found, where they would do an IND and poly exchange. And then if we did another one, it would actually be problematic for future two stages. Is it the Netherlands? Like, are they doing something totally different that we're not doing? You know, is their dare the same as our dare? And we all know that dare is not the same, right? We've definitely right. got patients from outside facilities who they literally open up the wound a little bit, squirt a little saline in there, close it up and called it a day. And we know that's not enough, right? And then we've also done them where you're like, it's an excavation, like carve everything out. You spend more time just taking out disgusting tissue than you would for a primary total knee. And this is why people don't like treating infection. So it's tough. You know, I really think we still have to assess our patients. And that's what the hardest part is. There's no good metric to say, this one's going to do really well with the double dare. This one's do really well with the triple dare. Maybe twice. But I would say two times would be the charm. To triple dare, that's really pushing it, I think. How often do you end up washing out people twice before taking out implants? Probably about 10%. And really, it'd have to be a special 10%. The last thing I want to do is screw a patient for a future right. two-stage exchange. So I 10% tops. One of my goals, which I'm not achieving at this point in time, but one of my goals is to be able to treat every infection with a dare because it's low morbidity. And if they could be 95 to 99% successful by doing a dare alone, I think a dare would just be great to be able to do that in all patients. So when I see that day, I'm done. I'm retiring. It's over. So on the topic of dare, Dr. Chen, what are you using irrigation wise for your dares? Are you using one thing? Are you throwing the whole kitchen sink at it? Well, I used to do the whole kitchen sink, but then Nick Jury at Stanford basically showed that Dakin's solution is probably not the best solution out there. And I used to always use that. So I do a combination. So I always do nine liters of saline. 
I do three liters of saline to start. Then I do dilute betadine, three liters of saline, dilute hydrogen peroxide. I use VersaJet as well too. So some sort of soft tissue debridement. I mean, I actually even debride the implant too. So I think it helps get rid of the biofilm moment. I have nothing to prove it with it, but it makes me feel good when I'm using a water pick on all the surfaces, get to the back posterior capsule, get into the acetabulum for the hips, you know, and get all the way around everything else. And then the last three liters of saline to clean everything up. So I put in the new parts and then I'll wash one more time actually with dilute betadine and another three liters of saline at the very end, like I would for a primary case. So thank you so much, Dr. Chen, for discussing those articles with us. We're going to end by a series of some rapid fire questions uh, for Dr. Chen about her practice. So away we go. Which approach do you use for your total hip replacements? Supine direct lateral. Do you have any contraindications to that approach? There's never any contraindications to that approach. It's always perfect. I thought it was if the patient had abductors. No, no, no. I'm, I'm joking. <laughs> Please don't hate me. Limps are so in. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, okay. <laughs> As a little my, one of my colleagues scrubbed in with me and he goes, I would like you to see a historical approach to the hip because it's important for you to see history coming to life. Is smoking a contraindication to total joint arthroplasty, according to you? Out. The patient has to quit smoking and I check the nicotine and coating levels. Do you have a BMI cutoff? 40. Do you do mostly inpatient or outpatient total joints in your practice? I did send all my patients home same day discharge today, but most of them are still overnight. What's a book or a podcast that you listened to recently that's not adult recon related that you would recommend? I don't do anything orthopedic, not orthopedic related. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I have to admit though, the last podcast I did listen to was She Can Fix It. And that's because Alani Munger did a really good job putting all those together. So I did cheat and listen to that. What kind of STEM do you use? doesn't have to be the name, but why do you use it? What do you um, like about it? It's a fully coated stem with a collar option on it. I do like the collar and I like three neck different options. And the reason I like that is one, I use it in fellowship. Two, I like variety. So it makes me feel comfortable when I have all those different choices. Nice. How about cups that multi-hole, no holes, screws, no screws? I wish I was bold enough to do that, but I have to have a little cluster hole every single time. And I put screws in probably about 50% of the time. If I put it in and I can't rock it, then no screws. If there's AVN or osteoporosis, I always put screws in. So about 50%. All right. Offset poly, lip liners, face changing, anything like that? Neutral all the way. All right. Dual mobility? Very, very rarely. And mostly in revision settings. Favorite fast food item? If you Ooh, eat it. Chili. Nice. What do you do to measure your neck cut? Finger. Yeah. <laughs> it <laughs> works really great. <laughs> x-rays? Intrap x-rays? No intrap x-rays. My supine lateral, you don't need it. You just put it in the same right place every single time. What do you use for your anticoagulation post-op? Mostly aspirin 81 twice a day. For how long? I use it for four weeks. Four weeks. Okay. And then what are situations where you would use something else? And if there are situations that you would use something else, what do you do? So if a patient's under revision, then I'll do aspirin 325 twice a day. And then if a patient comes in on anticoagulation prior to surgery, I'll put them back on it, either with the bridge, sometimes with Coumadin, I'll put the Lovenox bridge, or Zerato, I'll just start it the next day. So I just put them back on it. And that's the only time I really use something stronger. If they have a history of DVT, potentially I will. And sometimes we'll get heme consults. I very rarely get them. I just put a patient on Zerato recently, and um, they developed a post-op hematoma. So I try to avoid those like the plague. Okay, so you get a patient that has a superior lateral defect in the acetabulum, and how do you decide whether you go a big cup 
or you go small cup and an augment. Looking at the bone, most of the time I think I'd rather put in a jumbo cup, call it a day, and just put it in there. Augments are futsy still, I'd say, to put, and you know, you still have one other interface. If you can have direct cup to bone interface, my go-to is always jumbo cup. Favorite Marvel superhero? Ooh, is Batman in part of that? DC, but we'll, we'll allow it. Yeah, we'll, yeah. Allow, we'll allow Batman. I like he's dark and broody, but has really no superpowers and just a lot of cool weapons. <laughs> Normal guy. Thank you so much to Dr. Chen for joining us today. Make sure you visit the Young Arthroplasty Group website on aahks.org for links to all the articles we discussed, as well as information on how to join the Young Arthroplasty Group and AUKUS, which is a great resource for arthroplasty surgeons. Thank you for joining us for AUKUS Amplified. Visit aahks.org to learn more about how members of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, and investigate in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.